Well, good morning, church. Do you believe that a Christian can sin? That was a that was a hearty amen. Can a Christian sin with no consequence? Okay. I wonder if we believe that always. Do you think part of the enemy's tactic is to deceive you into thinking that you can sin without consequence? Let me ask you one more. Is there such a thing as secret sin? And you guys are like on it. Y'all are well studied. As it relates to secret sin, the most important person to keep in the dark or to keep secret, keep sin secret from, would be whom? Yeah, but guess what? He knows it all already. He sees it all. He is there for it all. He knows there are no secrets with God. Many years ago, uh, a good friend in ministry confided in me that he struggled with pornography. And it was the sin, it seemed like he just couldn't, he couldn't shake. He could not get past this struggle. And at this particular point in his journey, this uh, sin battle had escalated to the, the place that it really scared him. You see, he had, he had gone beyond uh, looking at images and videos and, and pictures and things and has begun interacting with real people over the Internet. And he was at a crossroads where um, his secret self and his real self were starting to collide. We talked a lot and um, prayed sincerely for God's mercy and forgiveness. I do believe he's very genuine in his prayers. We prayed for grace and the strength to move forward in purity. And I remember actually talking with him through um, and, and sort of alluding to the story of David and Goliath even. And kind of just suggesting that... um, you know, you have, a, you have a, a battle you're facing, and maybe this is bad application of the story, but I just remember saying this enemy wants to kill you. And um, if you don't kill it, it will kill you. This is a fight to the death, and one of you is going to die. Either the secret you or the real you. Well, it seemed that things improved. Time moved on. He got married. And like many people, he believed, I think he believed in his, in his heart that getting married was going to fix his lust problem. And let me just pause for a moment. Men, your wife is not meant to carry your integrity. And ladies, your husband cannot bear the weight of your sin either. So one night, uh, I was asleep. My, my wife and I were asleep. It's in the middle of the night. My phone rang and uh, rolled over and answered the phone, and it was my friend. He had been caught in an affair, and all of it came out. Multiple, multiple affairs, lots of mess. Rolled out of the bed onto my knees, and we just wept together over the phone. Real grief. Real sorrow. He lost his job. He lost um, a lot. Had to move to another city. Almost lost his family. Um, To quote a late theologian, sin will take you farther than you want to go will keep you longer than you want to stay. 
and will cost you more than you want to pay. Um, Ironically, that is a quote from Ravi Zacharias. And if you don't know his story, you can look it up later. But essentially, he's an apologist, a theologian, spent all of his life preaching the gospel and, you know, going on college campuses and explaining to students and young people why Jesus is better than everything, why Jesus is true and real, how you should trust in Christ and turn from sin. I mean, he spent his life doing those things publicly. But after his death on his cell phone and his computer, they discovered so much of a secret life that he was living. The truth is, there are no secret sins with God, right? I mean, from the very first pages of the Bible, we discover Adam and Eve uh, sinned in the garden. They, they tried immediately to cover and hide. They ran and hid behind bushes and covered their shame with fig leaves. And God did what he always does. He exposed and brought them to light. And they faced judgment with mercy. So today's message is a difficult one. It will be hard. Uh, it is intended to be a warning. The story of, that we're going to tackle today in the text is heavy. It's hard to read the detailed account of a man's epic, most notorious failure. And then his sad and pitiful attempts to cover up his sin. Now, the Holy Spirit recorded this story in this way to keep any of us from ever saying that could never happen to me. We best not think we're immune to any sin. So if you will, please find your place with me in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. As you're finding your place there, I want to give you some statistics. I was just researching and reading this week, and I, I studied some statistics just to see how prevalent this problem really is. I had to stop reading because it was so depressing. There was a Barna survey uh, recently in, in recent years. It's not even the newest one, but I'm sure the newest one is worse. So I'll just go with this one. 57% of 18 to 24 year olds, so our college age, 57% of college age adults are using pornography at least monthly. At least. And unless you think this is a, a young person's problem, over 30% of people over 50 years old are also using pornography. Once a month at least. In that college bracket, 18 to 24 year olds, 8%, almost 10% believe that pornography is good for society. This one was shocking. 64% of youth pastors are either currently or have recently struggled with pornography. 57% of lead pastors have admitted to previous struggles with pornography as well. 41% of adult Christians think their pastor should resign if he looks at porn. Only 8% of pastors agree. Because of that, 54% of pastors live in fear of being found out And do not, under any circumstances, confess their sin. These are not just issues with screens and devices and images and videos, as I alluded to earlier. This sin, like all sin, grows like bad mold. 65% of men and 55% of women admit to having an extramarital affair before the age of 40. 65 and 55 percent. 
Now, there are stats. These are stats regarding sexual sin. And I chose those because that's the nature of our scripture passage today. But there are many, many other sins that lurk in the dark. And what I want to say to us, church men, women, is this. Beware, brothers. Beware, sisters. We do face an enemy who is crouching at your door. Seeking to kill you, to steal your joy, to destroy you. Be on guard. If you found your place in our text for today, would you stand to your feet in honor of God's word? I'm going to read a lengthy passage because it's a narrative and I want to cover all the details just as the scripture gives them to us. So I want us to read all of chapter 11 and a portion of chapter 12. Please follow along with me. Second Samuel chapter 11. This is the word of the Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. She came to him. He lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah didn't go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, well, remain here today also. And tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate at his, in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there would be valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. And Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you've finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, if he says to you, why did you go so near the the city to fight. Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? So why did you go near the wall? If David says that, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. 
The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Chapter 12. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who's done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he has done this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, the God who sees it all, Your word is a two-edged sword, piercing, dividing us. Our sinful hearts are laid bare and cut by the details of this story. Lord, may these be wounds of a surgeon to heal. And I pray that today by your spirit, you would bring the light of the gospel into the dark places of our hearts. Help us to see our sin as you see it. And help us today to find hope only in Jesus. In his name and for his glory, we ask it. Amen. David's crash and burn moment gives us a good opportunity to grow in wisdom, to grow in wisdom. 
A fool fails to learn from his own mistakes. But a wise man will learn from the mistakes of others. So as we look at David's failure and this sin, the darkness brought to light and exposed. May we be people of wisdom who learn from his failure. What can we see? What can we see from David's failures? Let's walk through it together. And first, I want us to see that big, epic, big failures have small beginnings. Do you know that? Someone said to me this week, I don't know, it may have been Tucker. Maybe he's quoting someone else. If he's not, then... Okay, this is a quote from KB. Tell me if I get it wrong. He said, uh, Every great fall is the result of thousands of small bad decisions. Thousands? Hundreds. Hundreds. Thank you. This passage starts at the time when kings go off to war. But David stayed home. Rather than go to fight, David sent others. He stayed and he sent now, this marks a transition in the reign of David, doesn't it? I mean, he was, he was inaugurated into his kingship by going when everyone else was staying, remember? All the rest of the army stayed on the, on the battlefield. They were refusing to fight. But David said, I'll go. Send me, king. I'll fight that giant. I'll take. I'll go. But now we have a massive, a significant transition in David as a leader, as a king. And it could be just that he's getting older. He's definitely older in this part of the story, but there's a transition here. And the author makes a point to mention it. He says, at the time when kings go off to war, David stayed and he sent. There in his isolation, again, here's another small but significant part of the story. He gets up from his couch. He wanders on the roof, just looking over his kingdom not really working to build God's kingdom. And what we see is that idle hands make for idle hearts. Idle hands, I-D-L-E, make for idle, I-D-O-L, hearts. David on the roof of his house, he sees a, a beautiful woman. She's bathing. She's beautiful. And he sees... Her, this seeing isn't a sin. It is a temptation. It isn't a sin. He could have in this moment, he could have gone, ooh, I better go back inside. It's not my wife. It's not right that I see her like this. I should, I should go back inside. Go back downstairs. Have a sandwich. Whatever. But he doesn't. It's a small decision. Big impact. He lingers. In his lingering the desire, the evil desire of his heart begins to grow. He lingers and then he longs for her. Now, here's a moment again for David when he had an opportunity to change course, but he doesn't. There, there are multiple small stop signs along the way, even in our own journeys, right? Where the Holy Spirit is pricking your heart and saying to you, don't go there. Don't go there. And like David, many of us go, shh, 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 I kind of like this. Shh. So David entertains the thought of, uh, of some kind of, of, of a rendezvous. You know, I mean, how could I? Maybe, how, maybe hmm. No chance I'd just run into her in the market. I don't go down there. Hmm. What do I do? Hey, hey, hey. I'm wondering how this question went. <laughs> when he, when he asked who is this woman? I'm wondering if he says, hey, you see that woman I'm staring at in the bath? I don't, I don't know how that went down. Who is she? So he inquires about her. So this is the beginnings of what might be some actionable sin, right? Who is she? Well, now here comes another little stop sign. I don't know if you see it, but um, David's messengers come to him and say, well, I mean, this is, isn't this the... The daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. 
But David knows her father. And David's, one of David's, David's close, mighty men is her husband, Uriah. He knows them both. There's this personal thing that should have been a, a big stop sign, you know, like, hey, this is the, the daughter of someone you know and respect. And, and oh, oh, the wife of your friend, your faithful, loyal servant, Uriah. Now, this is where we see that the wickedness, the evil of his own heart has begun to take over. David's mind was already set. It was already enslaved to the evil desires of his broken heart. Instead of hearing what should have been a gentle rebuke. I mean, how do you rebuke the king, right? A gentle rebuke, a word of caution. These, these are details that matter. This should have been a stop sign. Instead of even hearing it that way, David hears it as a green light. His thought is not, oh, this is the wife of Uriah. His thought is, her husband's out of town. Sin distorts your judgment. It makes everything cloudy and you lose track of where wisdom is and what foolishness is. And the problem is that the first small wrong step makes the next sequential wrong steps even easier. So David sins for her. The Bible is really concise in verse 4. Doesn't of all the details we've been given, we're given really none here. It just says he took her, she came to him, he lay with her. Do you hear the short, like punchy statements here? I think it's intentional. It's the moment that all of this temptation is building up to, isn't it? I mean, all the, all the sort of adrenaline, the, the blood pumping excitement, the possibilities of what may be, what might could happen. All the, all the imaginative work that's been happening in David's heart and mind that's led him to this point. And then we get to the climax of it all and it's just four short words. He lay with her. Sin over promises and under delivers. We ought to learn from David to not underestimate the danger of small, seemingly insignificant sin. James chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 also warns us. It's a warning um, wrapped up in, in saying, listen, don't blame Satan every time you sin. Don't blame Satan every time you sin. And certainly don't blame God is what James writes. He says God tempts no one. God isn't a tempter of us. So in James 1.14, he gives clarity to where sin comes from. But we see a little bit about the nature of our sin. James chapter 1 verses 14 and 15. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by what? His own evil desires. His own evil desires. But now listen to what happens, the the cumulative compounding nature of sin in verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth what? Death. That's where it's all headed. But it's hard to see that at the beginnings of the journey. It just looks like a fun little trounce. Looks playful, fun, and exciting. It's hard to see that these steps are steps off a cliff. In David, we really hear, I know last week I said you are not David, but in David's failures, we really ought to see that we are a lot like David here. We should see ourselves and, and realize this, that on your best day, listen to me, on your best day, you have the capacity for the worst kinds of evil. Every one of us. After the moment with Bathsheba, David sent her home. In his mind, it was done. Probably not the best decision he'd ever made, but oh well, we'll just move on. We'll let it fade into the past. No one has to know. That's how that works, isn't it? A couple months pass. 
He probably hasn't thought about it since. But the woman, and that's the way the Bible refers to her, interestingly enough, in this, the narrator actually dehumanizes her as this action has done and just calls her the woman most of the time. The woman sins for him. And with three, world, three words, his, word, his world is shaken up. I am pregnant. Now I've thought for a moment about this this week. These three words should bring incredible joy, shouldn't they? These are words that many couples celebrate. I mean, I can remember many times <laughs> hearing those words. <laughs> Uh, many times uh, hearing those words and celebrating like this is exciting well mostly celebrating this is awesome many young couples many young families would long to hear these words to say these words and it's amazing how sin casts a dark shadow, a dark stain over what's intended to be beautiful and makes it something else. Three words that should have brought incredible joy. These words strike fear in the heart of a sinful king. It's amazing. David's secret sin would soon begin to show, pun intended, Number two, dark secrets will come to light, will come to light. Luke chapter 12, verses two and three. I thought this was very clear words uh, from Jesus. He says, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. He's talking to Pharisees here who think their sin is secret and he's making sure they know it's not. Brothers and sisters, there are a couple of lies that we believe. The, the deceiver, this is what he does. He's the father of lies. And in order for us to wade into these deep waters of sin, we actually have to believe some of his lies. And I'll give you two that are, are significant in David's journey. The first one he believes is that this secret sin won't actually hurt anyone. That's what he thinks. This won't hurt anybody. But the truth is... You'll never know all the collateral damage of your sin, right? Now, in this story, we're given a glimpse at some of the fallout of David's sin. I mean, Bathsheba is violated. Uriah is betrayed. His friend is betrayed, manipulated, and then murdered. Joab, the commander of the army, his morality as a leader is compromised. The baby dies and that's just some of it right some of the collateral of this sin do you really believe that your secret sin doesn't hurt anybody don't be deceived a second lie that we believe is that sin really only matters when someone finds out after all his cover-up, all the efforts to cover up, you know, as soon as the news comes that she's pregnant, David starts thinking, I've got to make it look like this baby belongs to her husband. So we've got to send for Uriah, get him to come home and do whatever I can do to get him to go home with his wife. Like, surely this man's coming from battle. He'll want to be with his wife. Nope. What we find in this story is that even a drunk Uriah is more honorable than sober David. It's amazing how the, the path of trying to cover our sin drowns us in our own efforts. David takes Bathsheba as his own wife. 
I don't want to make much of this, but I'll just say that in the Hebrew custom, in the Jewish custom, to take another man's wife after he's deceased is an honorable thing. It was a, it was a choice of honor that that woman would be given children. So I want you to think about really what David's doing here. He's not just choosing the path of cover-up. He's choosing a path where this cover-up will actually be self-promotion. I want to make myself look really good here. How good would it look to take my warrior's widow as the king's wife and give her my child? Oh, this will be high praise. How distorted. In all of this, we see that David's thinking it's a secret. He's succeeded to cover it all up. He's married the wife. The child will be born. The baby will be his. No one will think anything of it. He's ready to move on, put this whole scandal behind him. But it's strange. I wonder if you've noticed through the whole chapter, the Lord is not mentioned one time. Not until the very last verse. It's as if David believes he's not even there for this whole scandal. Where's God? Ah, he's... God's no, he doesn't even know this is happening. The last verse, we're clued into the fact that God's been there all the time. And even though David told his messenger to send word back to the battlefield to say in verse 25, don't let this matter displease you. Some people die by the sword. Don't let it displease you. Don't be upset. Be encouraged. That's what David said. Don't let it displease you. But the word at the last verse of the chapter is, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. There are no secrets with God. It doesn't matter if everyone else is happy with you if God is displeased. Doesn't matter if no one else knows, God knows. So, chapter 12 is the story of how God exposed David. It's the, I call it the grace of shame. The Lord sent Nathan. Now, in chapter 11, we saw that King David did all the sending. He stayed home from war. He sent his soldiers to fight. He sent messengers to Bathsheba. He sent for Uriah. He sent Uriah back with a letter. He sent a letter to Joab. He sent, he sent, he sent. David is operating in this kingly authority of sending, sending, sending. But in chapter 12, we see who the real king is when he sends the prophet Nathan. To his wayward son, David. And Nathan's story provokes David's shepherd's heart. Have you considered how God is so pinpointed precise to deal with who you are? That Nathan comes in and tells a story about a victim lamb. That this man loved and raised from his own. Who was David? Remember, who was David? What did he used to do? He's a shepherd. Oh, God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? He comes in and tells a story about a man who loves this, this, this lamb. He's raised it from a baby. He's nursed it. He's, it's eaten from his food and drunk from his own cup. It, nur- it didn't nurse it his bosom, but laid. <laughs> that would be weird. Just laid in his lap, right? The story here is t- trying, to, trying to cast this compassionate, loving, poor man who only has this one. And then contrast with this man who has it all. And David's emotions are roused as they should be. He's aroused by this injustice, this tragedy. How could this happen? How could this person do this? Why would he do this? And he, he elicits an emotional response, Nathan does, from David. And David says, this man deserves to die. But then he gives a king's judgment from the king's mouth. He actually casts a verdict. He says, he will pay back fourfold what he has done. David didn't know that he was pronouncing judgment on himself. Nathan turns to him and with four short words, you are the man. The figment that David had created with two people, a secret king and a, and a real king. What we realize is that this king, the shepherd king, the savior king has become a spoiled king in the darkness. You know, when you put... 
When you put bread away and it just stays in there too long, you lose it in the pantry, and then you find it, you pull out this bag of green bread. You know what I'm talking about? This is the imagery in my mind when I'm talking about the spoiled king. It's been in the dark. He's been in the dark so long. He's gone rotten. And in this moment, David is bringing him to light. You are the man. You have victimized. You've used your power, leveraged it over the weak. You've taken what's not yours. You have murdered to cover up your mess. And God has seen it all. God knew. God would not allow it to stay in the dark. This is the grace of shame. It is a grace, listen to me, to be exposed. Because it's only then you can actually be healed. Like it's only in the exposure of your sin that you have a real opportunity to confess it to God, to confess it to people, and to turn from it, to be changed, to to walk away, to repent. This is the opportunity David is given, and praise God, he responds in the right way. Let me make just an obvious statement with this third truth. Here it is. Sin is against God. Just an obvious statement. I realize I'm just stating the the obvious here, but it must be said twice in God's verdict over David. In this divine decree, the Lord diagnosed David's sin as despising something. If you you write in your Bible, I want to encourage you to underline the word you despised because it's in there twice. And here's what the Lord says that David despised in verse nine of chapter 12. It says he you despise the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. Do you know that sin is against the word of God? It's the word of God. Specifically, David breaks a few of God's words, doesn't he? Don't covet your neighbor's wife. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. I mean, these are pretty clear. But God says you have despised the word of the Lord. So I want to ask you an obvious question. Don't answer. Why is David having an intimate relationship with another consenting adult? Supposing she was consenting. Don't know that. Why is this sin? Why is it sin? Now, this is a good question. And it's a question that our culture fails to answer in many terms. Why is sex between David and Bathsheba wrong? I mean, assuming that they're both consenting adults, what's the big deal? Shouldn't they be able to do what they want to do? I mean, her husband's been gone a long time. David's the king. She has an opportunity with the king. I mean, what's what's the big deal here? We must remember that sin is against God. And he determines what sin is. We do not. He's the ultimate judge over the living and the dead. And what he says matters more than what any of us think. This is the essence of what makes something sin or not. Even though we are in the habit today of redefining and recategorizing certain behaviors, God doesn't play that way. His word is unchanging. His commands are unchanging. They are for our good. When we despise the word of God, we sin. Secondly, the Lord says, in your sin, you despise the Lord. I just wanted to make mention here that he takes it personally. The Lord is saying, you would rather chase what you think will satisfy rather than being truly satisfied in me. You've despised me. The Lord is talking like, ironically, a husband to his unfaithful wife. He is hurt by David's chasing a fleeting pleasure Outside of himself. The whole book of Hosea is actually a real life parable illustrating this reality of a faithful husband. God is the faithful husband who's married to the prostitute woman who continually goes away from him and an adulteress with other men. 
And that book is a vivid portrait of God's steadfast love for his adulterous bride, us. In this moment, David is, God is telling David, you have despised the Lord. So here we are, David's exposed, his sinful heart is laid bare. What does God do to his guilty sons and daughters? What does a holy God do to his guilty child? This brings us to number four. There is hope for sinners. Do you believe that? There is hope for sinners. David confesses his sin. No excuses, no blaming, no explaining, no expounding. He just steps forward. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan's next words are probably some of the most shocking in all the Bible. The Lord has put away your sin. What in the world? Let's just be clear here. You've slept with another man's wife. You murdered that man. The baby has died. And the Lord is putting away your sin. How can this be? It's because the amazing grace of our God meets with the heinous nature of our sin with scandalous mercy. Now listen. This is you and me. David had already issued an emotional response about the man who committed such heinous sin. What did he say? This man deserves to what? Die. But what does God say? God says you shall not die. What? How is this even possible? He certainly deserves to die even by David's own words. How is it possible? How can God be just and the one who justifies sinners? Romans 3 answers the question, but it's simply put this way. Jesus. Only because of Jesus. And so God is passing over the sins of David, looking forward to the cross of Jesus Christ and saying, my son, Jesus, the the greater, the better son of David is going to bear the justice that the real David deserves so that the real David can get the mercy of God. Now, there will be terrible real life consequences for David, but God is preserving his life, passing over his sin. David's sin debt would be put away from him only by being put on Jesus. The better David, the son of David, King Jesus, would bear the consequence, the ultimate punishment for David's sin. God pours out the justice that David deserves on Jesus so that he can pour out the mercy on repentant David. Jesus took our justice. Do you know that? Jesus took your justice. What you and I deserve, Jesus took it so that we can receive his mercy. Christ is the true and better David. And in this story, we see David as an epic failure, a sharp contrast to Jesus. We've seen in past messages how he's similar. He points us as a shadow, a similarity, a likeness to Christ. But in this text, we see how he's so unlike Jesus. King David chose to stay home instead of going to fight. But Jesus left his home in glory and came to fight on your behalf. David took the life of another to cover up his own sin. But Jesus gave his own life to cover your sin and my sin. Now, maybe you're thinking. God may forgive me in eternity. But I've made Way too much of a wreck of my life. There's no redeeming it now. Well, David was an adulterer, a murderer. But God redeemed him. 
verses 24 and 25 of chapter 12, the Bible says that David comforted his wife Bathsheba. They had another son and they named him Solomon. The name Solomon literally is Shalom Man. It means the man of peace. Peaceable. The man who brings and will be your peace. Shalom Man. Solomon. When Nathan heard that they had had a son named Solomon, he said, I want to call this boy Jedediah, which means beloved of God. These are words of redeeming mercy, not for the eternity, not for forever, not so far away, but even now. And it's the words of redeeming grace and mercy on David and Bathsheba and the son that they had together. In Matthew chapter one, verse six, we see that even in the lineage of Jesus, it lists Bathsheba. Says it this way in Matthew 1, 6, David, the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. It's a little moment that brings her into the story. And what we see there is that the story of David's worst failure became part of the tapestry of God's greatest masterpiece. He is a God who redeems our brokenness for his own glory and truly for our good. So listen, the exhortation to you today, hopefully you've heard plenty of warning, 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 right? And we ought to be warned. There are dangers lurking for us. In small moments, there can be epic, big failure. But here's the truth. Confess your sin. Confess your sin to God. Trust Him. Let the blood of, that David shed Remind you that your sin is deadly and attempting to cover it is futile. But let the blood that Jesus shed remind you that your sin is washed clean and hiding it is unnecessary. Confess to Christ, confess to some trusted believers, be forgiven, be healed, be delivered. Remember David's words, the man who did this deserves to die, And unlike you and me, Christ did not deserve to die. But the better David, the son of David, the son of God, went to the cross in our place. There is hope in Jesus. Repent. Turn to the Lord. Be satisfied in Him.